0: Would you please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1? If you're not sure where that's at, it's toward the very back of your Bible, 1 John chapter 1. Have you ever been so embarrassed you didn't even want to leave the house? This happened to my wife Maggie one time. I got permission to share this story, by the way. She had what she called a big fat zit right under her nose. And I'm not going to lie, it was really big. (laughs) It didn't bother me, but it bothered her quite a lot. I heard about it for two days. Have you seen this zit? It's so big I can see it without even looking in the mirror. What is going on, she said. And those of you who know her, she added her classic line, it's disgusting. She tried all of the remedies on the internet to minimize uh, the nature of what was uh, being seen. She tried to cover it up with makeup, but it was all to no avail. And on the third day of the big zit fiasco, We had dinner scheduled with some friends, and we didn't want to cancel, but how could she be seen in public with this cyst, I mean, zit on her face? What would she do? Well, as I arrived at the restaurant to meet her, I found out what her plan was. She had put a full-size Band-Aid over that zit. I about lost it. But I kept a straight face as it, right about that time, our dinner guests slid into the booth across from us. It only took them about two seconds to start looking at Maggie's face, although they tried to hide it. It was awkward. And so Maggie broke the silence, the awkwardness and said, I know I've got a mandate on my face. Let's just get that out of the way. I have a big fat zit, and this is the only way to cover it up. Everybody died laughing, as you can imagine, including Maggie. Isn't it amazing the silly things that we do to try to cover up our blemishes? And not just our physical blemishes. We do some really stupid stuff to cover up our spiritual blemishes as well when we sin we generally do one of two silly things we might act like our sin is no big deal we minimize it or we may try to cover it up to hide it to hide it from others maybe even to hide it from ourselves and to hide it from God. But isn't that ridiculous? And isn't it unfortunate? You see, when we hide our sin from God, we miss out on an opportunity to experience the blessings of Christ who has dealt with our sin in His life, His death, and His resurrection. So how do you deal with sin? You do sin. How do you deal with it? Do you act like it's no big deal? Do you try to hide it? Or do you do what we ought to do, and that is bring it into the light, knowing that Jesus has dealt with it. How we deal with our sin is critical to our ongoing life as Christians. Over the last three weeks, we've been studying the twin themes of light and darkness in the gospel of John. This morning, we are in 1 John 1. Just to orient you to these two books, the gospel of John has a very clear purpose. It was written so that we may believe. More specifically, it was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing that we would come to have life eternal life in his name so written so that we may believe and gain life why was first john written it was written so that we may have assurance of salvation assurance that we in fact have eternal life first john 5:13 says i write these things to you Who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. How does John give his readers assurance? How does he help them to know that they have eternal life? If you're not familiar with 1 John, most commentators would say he lays out three tests for his readers. There is tests to help us evaluate our faith and our life to see if we belong to Christ. The first is the theological test. It has to do with what you believe about Jesus. The second is the moral test. It helps us to evaluate whether or not our lives line up with what we believe. And the third is the social test, which helps us to evaluate our love for one another in the church. These are really helpful tests as we evaluate what a person, what we specifically, what we believe about Jesus. If a person believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, if they believe that He came with the express purpose of dying for their sins, and then if they live their lives in a way that lines up with this belief, if they show genuine love for one another in the body, they will have some grounding for assurance that they belong to Christ, that they have been reconciled to God. But there's a bit of a tension in this process. John was written, First John was written for those purposes that I laid out. I'm telling you the truth. But there's a bit of a tension. You see, if we're honest, as we engage in this type of evaluation, we know that our lives don't always line up with what we believe. We know that we do not always love one another as we are called to do. We all still sin, even true believers. Not only that, we persist sometimes. It's not just that we sin occasionally here and there. Sometimes we persist in ongoing repeated patterns of sin. So does that mean that none of us are genuine Christians? Not necessarily. Our passage this morning helps to nuance this Tension to cut through the tension. It helps us to see something that is crucial to the Christian life and critical to our assurance of salvation. It is true that God does not want us to sin. He hates sin. Sin hurts us. Sin hurts others. Sin hinders us from experiencing fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. But, how do we deal with our sin when we sin? That's the question. That's the nuance of this tension. That's how we come to examine, rightly, whether or not we're the real deal. It's not simply whether or not we live the right kind of life. It's how we deal with our sin when we don't live the right kind of life. Do we act like it's no big deal when we sin? Do we run from God? Neither of those responses are the way that genuine believers should deal with their sin. Our passage gives us a better way forward. So with that lengthy setup to 1 John, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? I'll begin in chapter 1 verse 5 and read through chapter 2 verse 2. we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My original title was Walking in the Light. I've changed it to How to Deal with Sin. The reason I've done that is because I believe that one of the key things to assurance of salvation is how we deal with sin. John wants his readers to have assurance. And if you believe in Christ, I want you to have that assurance as well. If you don't believe, I'm praying that these sermons on the light in John and now in first John, that they would lead you to repentance and to faith. But for those who believe, I want you to have assurance. John wants you to have assurance. God wants you to have assurance. And our assurance is linked with the way we deal with sin. So there are three ways that authentic Christians are called to deal with sin in this passage. First, if you want fellowship, you can't hide your sin. Our passage begins by giving us a truth about God in verse 5. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Everything that follows... In these verses, everything that follows in this passage is anchored in this foundational, fundamental truth. So verse 7 calls us to walk in the light as He is in the light. But if we're going to understand what it means for us to walk in the light, we first have to understand what it means that God is light. In John, both his gospel and his letters, light and darkness are understood in two opposite ways light is the revelation of the truth darkness veils the truth that's the first opposite pair the second is light is moral purity whereas darkness is evil So, when the text says that God is light and in him there is no darkness, that means that God reveals himself to us truly in his word and in his son. He is not deceptive or he is not false in his revelation, and he doesn't hide himself from us. Thank God. Second, he is holy, there is no evil. In God. So when John calls us to walk in the light as he is in the light, that means that we are called to live in a way that is consistent with who God is. We ourselves are called to live holy lives, not evil lives. And here's what I want to emphasize. We are called to live our lives out in the open, not in secret. Sin and secrecy keep us from intimacy with God. Let me say that again. This is a really important message if you want to make progress in the Christian life. Sin and secrecy keep us from intimacy with God. We can't experience an ongoing, intimate relationship with God if we are living in an ongoing and secret sin. Look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. How do sin and secrecy keep us from intimacy? with God the simple answer is God's holy and does not commune with sin but it's much more dynamic than that in first John remember what we've been learning about light God's light the light of Christ is like a spotlight it reveals to us who God is it reveals his holiness it reveals his will But it also reveals or exposes, would be a better word, our sin. We don't like to have our sin exposed. When our sin is exposed, we feel ashamed. We are like Adam and Eve then. We feel naked. And what do naked people generally do? They go hide. They cover up. Sometimes this exposure leads us to the brink of despair. We see patterns of sin in our lives and wonder, how could God ever forgive me? Have you ever thought that? When we get to that point, we tend to hide From God, whenever we sin yet again, we tend to run from God and also to run from other believers as well. When I was in high school, I had a young life leader who was faithful to come to the school most days. When I was walking in the light, I greeted him gladly. When I was living in the darkness and saw him coming down the hall, I would take a detour and go in the opposite direction. Those of you who are in ministry, whether vocational or simply involved in people's lives, you know what I'm talking about. And the rest of you who have ever had somebody that's discipling you or leading you, you know what I'm talking about as well. When we live in sin, we hide from God and we hide from others. We tend to stop spending time with the Lord when we feel ashamed. To avoid any type of meaningful conversation with other believers. And some even stop going to church altogether because they do not want the light shining in their eyes, so to speak. But friends, when we're afraid of the light, we forget something very important about the light. The light not only reveals God's holiness, it not only exposes our sin, it does both of those things, but it does something else. It also throws light on the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is the answer to our sin and our shame. When we live in secret sin, we rob God of the opportunity, as verse 7 says, to cleanse us from our sin. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, verse 7 says, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And this cleansing is not simply covering up our spiritual zits. It removes them so that we can Go out in public, so to speak. Come out. We're covered. We're okay. We are secure if we are in Christ. We do not have to hide. When we hide, we forfeit the opportunity to experience God's grace. So let me ask you maybe the most important question this morning. When you sin, Where do you go? That may say the most about you. When you sin, and you do, and you will, where do you go? Do you run and hide from God, or do you run to God? Do you walk in the dark, or do you walk in the light? if you want to experience fellowship with God and with other believers, you can't hide your sin. Second, if you want forgiveness, you must confess your sin. Running from God in shame is one bad way to deal with sin or one unhealthy way. But there's an opposite error and that is the error of minimizing our sin. I think some of the false teachers in John's day were doing that. Look in verse eight. I think they're the ones who are saying they have no sin. Verse 10, they say they have not sin. To say we haven't sinned is to deny our sin and to deny our sin is to deceive ourselves. We all know that we're sinners. And that we continue to sin throughout our lives. Although we are striving after holiness, hopefully. Interestingly, as we get more like Jesus, we become more aware of our sin, don't we? But denying sin is not only deception. Denying sin also makes God out to be a liar. In what way? Well, first of all, God has said in His Word repeatedly and in no uncertain terms, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when we say we haven't sinned, we are making God's Word a lie. But not only that, we are lying against God's actions. God's actions prove that we sin. What do I mean by that? God sent his only son to pay the penalty for our sins. If a person says they are without sin, they are mocking the most significant work of God. They mock the fact that Christ died for our sins. Minimizing sin is a big problem in our society. It's a huge problem in our society. And it's a big problem in churches as well. The pastor of one of the largest churches in America was interviewed some years ago by Larry King. When Larry King asked him if he had ever used the word sinner, the pastor replied, I don't use it. I never thought about it, but I probably don't use it. But most people already know what they're doing is wrong. When I get them to church, I want to tell them, you can change. You see, when preachers start talking about sin, people start squirming. Sometimes even protesting. Can't you just be more positive? I've been asked that question before. Maybe some of you have wondered, why does he have to talk so much about sin and judgment? Let me be very clear. It is my great desire to be positive, if you want to put it that way. But the positive message of the gospel is meaningless if you minimize the problem of sin and God's judgment the positive message of the bible is that jesus died for our sins to deal with god's wrath if you don't acknowledge we're sinners sinners that are so sinful that it required the sacrifice of god's son then when you say this is good news jesus died for our sins who really cares We are experts at denying our sin, not just in the culture, not just in the megachurches, but in our everyday lives. We may not deny it in the same way, but we still deny it in all kinds of ways. Let me try to drive this home. Think of the last time somebody pointed out something that you did wrong. What was your immediate response? Not necessarily what did you say, but what did you think? Wasn't the first response defensiveness? Wasn't the first response, if not defensiveness, comparing yourself, maybe to the person that was pointing out your sin, or comparing yourself to others? Maybe even comparing yourself to yourself saying, at least I didn't screw up as bad as I did last time. When we don't take responsibility for our sins, we are, in effect, denying our sins. We can't minimize sin. We can't deny sin. When we do, we diminish the holiness of God and the depths of His mercy. If we want to experience God's forgiveness, we must confess our sins. It's not enough to simply not hide it. We must bring it out into the open and make it known. And we must be specific. When you wrong somebody and you then go to them to ask for their forgiveness... Let me give you a little counsel. This is extra. The worst thing you can do is simply say I'm sorry. You you need to tell them specifically what you did wrong to show them how you think that may have affected them, to then ask them to forgive you and then to receive their forgiveness. The same is true with God. We don't simply say I'm sorry, We name what we have done so that we can be forgiven for the specific thing that we have done. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, Men ought not to content themselves with general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. I love that to repent of His particular sins particularly. We need to get our particular sins out in the open to name exactly how you have sinned to own it. And then to know that whatever it is, God already knows. And in full knowledge of that sin, sent His Son to die for you. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God has promised that in His Son, He will forgive the sins of all of those who belong to Him. So He will be faithful to keep His promise. God is also just. What that means is that in His justice, He cannot simply overlook your sins. He can't just turn the other way. He is just. And so He must deal with sin. He must punish sin. But in the cross of Christ, He has done so. He has borne the penalty that we deserve to pay so that God can be faithful and God can be just. Do you believe it? Then stop hiding. Do you believe it? Then stop minimizing it. God knows. And He has dealt with it. How do you do that? Practically. Practically. I want to offer two things of practical application. For one, make a habit in your personal time in the Lord as you read the Bible and as you pray of confessing sin. Just add it to your routine in your time with the Lord. I would say get out a pen or your computer, however you do it, and in your journal, write it down. Write your praises down. Write your requests down, but write your confession down as well. This will help you to particularize your sin. Helps me to see the depth of my sin, but it also leads me to see the depth of God's mercy to experience his forgiveness. So that's the first thing. The second is make a habit of confessing your sins to one another. There are only four places in the New Testament that speak of confessing our sins. Three of them, not this passage, but three of them quite clearly have in mind confessing our sins to one another. It's not clear to me that this passage has that in mind, although it may, but I am confident that the practice is beneficial in three or four ways. For one, as we confess our sin with other people, they can help us to process it. To see it rightly. So that we are not deceived ourselves. Second. Most importantly. They can remind us of the gospel. And minister the grace of God. To us. They can say you're right. That was pretty bad. Not minimize it. But then say. Christ died for your sin. And he wants to restore you. Third. They can help hold us accountable. And help us to walk in the light. Even as christ is in the light i'm not suggesting that you go public with all of your secret sins but somebody that knows you and somebody whom you can trust they can really help you if you do not have somebody or even a group of people like that in your life that's one of your main homework assignments for this morning begin seeking out somebody praying for somebody that you can share your life with. Talk to Jordan Green about getting involved in a community group. That is a good first step. The way that we deal with our sin, it is critical. We don't hide our sin. We confess our sin. Knowing as we deal with our sin in that way that God has dealt with our sin through Christ. And that leads me to the final point. If you want assurance, you must believe Christ covers your sin. Chapter 2, verse 1, we see that one reason John is writing is so his readers won't sin. And I don't want to minimize how important it is to strive to obey God and to pursue holiness. I just read a book with our residents on this. J.C. Ryle's Holiness. It is so critical. But what I want to say now is that if we are basing our assurance of salvation on what we do, that will be a very shaky foundation, one that won't hold your weight. John wants his readers to understand attention. Don't minimize sin, but don't despair when you sin. As one pastor said, it's easy to think of sin wrongly, understatement. But as he went on, it was really helpful to me. He said, there are two deep ditches on either side of the narrow road that we need to walk on if we want assurance. The first is the ditch of presumption. That is to say, uh, our sin's not that big of a deal. It's to hide it as we've been talking about. The other ditch is the ditch of despair, which leads us to hide from God, to wonder if we could ever be forgiven I know that both tendencies are found in this room in fact I know that both tendencies are found in my own life on any given day but if we want the gospel to make any sense whatsoever we must stay on the narrow road at the risk of being overly repetitious Let me just lay out the truth again. Sin is a big deal. We are commanded to not sin. But we still do. Those are the facts. But the other fact is that God has dealt with it in Christ. That's the narrow road. Look again at verses 1-2 to just so you can hear it from God's Word. My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So there's part one. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Sin's a big deal to God. Such a big deal that we deserve God's just judgment. We deserve God's Wrath. But if we have placed our trust in Christ, if we have repented of our sins and cling to Christ, He is the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? Big word, an important word for you to understand. What that means is that through His death on the cross, He has satisfied the wrath of God. That's what propitiation means. Our sins are covered through His blood. And His righteousness is then given to us by faith. So that God no longer stands in relationship to us according to wrath, but grace. For all who believe in Christ, the text tells us that Christ is our advocate. Why does it use that language? This language is critical. It's legal language. It's courtroom language. Imagine for a moment that you are on trial. You're being accused of being an inauthentic Christian. Are you an inauthentic Christian? I am at times. You're being accused of being a hypocrite. And truth be told... You are a hypocrite. There's a lot of evidence stacked up against you. It's plain in this trial that you are a sinner, that you are guilty. So how can you have any assurance in this scenario? You can't. If you are basing your assurance on your life and what you have done, But if you are in Christ, you have an advocate standing there in the courtroom. Standing there and saying, I've got you covered. An advocate who has no sin in and of himself. He is the light. He is the righteous one. He reflects God's holiness perfectly. But not only that, he says, I've got you covered because I've paid the penalty for your sin. God takes sin seriously, so seriously that He has dealt with it. Jesus has satisfied God's wrath. That's what it means, that He is the propitiation for our sins. He offered His life, a perfect life, in place of your sinful life. He offered His life on the cross to pay the penalty that you deserve. To put it in the language of 2 Corinthians, He became sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. And so now, if you are in Him, God chooses to look on Christ and His perfect righteousness, His perfect sacrifice, instead of you. That is the only way you can have assurance, is to know that God is looking at His Son in the courtroom instead of looking at you. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Before the throne of God above, the song says, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest Whose name is love, whoever lead, lives and pleads for me. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him and pardon me. Are you really a Christian? Your only assurance comes from placing your trust in Him, in Christ the righteous. He has dealt with your sin. That's what enables you to deal with your sin in healthy ways. That's my sermon. He's dealt with your sin once and for all. That's what enables you to to deal with your sin in healthy ways. Christ's work is the thing that enables you to run to Him instead of from Him. Christ's work is the thing that enables you to confess your sin instead of denying it. It's Christ's work that enables you to experience intimate fellowship with God. It's Christ's work that enables you to experience forgiveness. Not just to have forgiveness, but to experience forgiveness every day. How do you deal with your sins, friends? Maybe the most important thing about your ongoing walk with Jesus. Are you walking in the darkness? Are you walking in the light? Let's pray. Father, I pray that the light of Christ would do all that it is intended to do in this congregation today. That it would expose our sin. That it would reveal Your judgment. But that it would also reveal to us Your all-sufficient sacrifice for sin in Your Son. And that we would stop hiding in the dark recesses, in the secret places. We would come out and come to Jesus. Receive and experience Your great mercy. To know that we are beloved children. To bask in that. To marvel in that. We're not good enough. But Your Son is. Show us Christ. May we cling to Him. Amen.